All right, good evening, everybody. Good to see you out tonight in the house of the Lord. Let's take our Bibles and go to Judges chapter 10. We welcome our online audience as well from around the world. It's good to be with you. And so let's study God's Word together. If you're new to our Wednesday night study, we go verse by verse through a book of the Bible. We've been going through the book of Judges now for the last few months. We're here in chapter 10, and Lord willing, we're going to look at chapters 10 and 11 tonight. Uh, And so let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for meeting us here. Your word tells us where two or more are gathered in your name. There you are in our midst. So we thank you, Lord, for being here. And we trust that you've been glorified through our worship and through our prayer time. And now we just pray that you would settle our hearts as we open up your word together. And that you'd speak to us, Lord, through the pages of scripture. We love you and we give you praise and glory and honor in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. So the book of Judges, so named in Hebrew, it's called Shoftim because this is a list of military leaders or sort of like governors who are raised up by God uh, to bring leadership and help uh, to the people of Israel. And so there are 12 that are mentioned in the book of Judges. The ones in capital letters on your screen have more of a prominent role in the history of Israel. The lowercase letters indicate those have, you know, very little uh, said about them uh, in, in the book of Judges, and we come to two of them uh, tonight who have very little said about them. This is number six on the list. This is Tola, and, and so if you look at chapter 10, verse 1, it says, After Abimelech there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo. <laughs> so now you know why he doesn't really get a lot spoken about him, Right? I mean, if your grandfather is is Dodo, you know, what do we need to say about you? But anyway, he's a man of Issachar. That's the tribe he belonged to. And he dwelt in Shamir in the mountains of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years that he died and was buried in Shamir. That's all we have on him. That's it. You know, he reigns for 23 years, but there's there's no mention of anything he did during the 23-year period. All we have is a little bit of his heritage there. His, his father's name was Pua. His grandfather's name was Dodo. And by the way, Tola in Hebrew means red worm. Can it get any worse? <laughs> right? So that's all we have on this guy. And, uh, and, then, and then number seven is Yair. There's no J in the Hebrew alphabet, so his name is really spelled with a Y in Hebrew, Yair. And uh, he only gets uh, three verses. Tola got two. He gets one more than that. And this is what it says in verse 3. After him arose Yair, a Gileadite, and he judged Israel 22 years. Now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they also had 30 towns, which are called Havoth Yair, uh, which means villages of Jair. And to this day, which are in the land of Gilead, and Yair died and was buried in Camon. So that's all we have on him, and that he has 30 sons, and they each, you know, had their own F-150 that they drove. Um, well, that's what a donkey was the equivalent of back in the day. And, um, and that they each, you know, all of daddy's sons each got a town. So, you know, they had a town, and, and they had a, a cool car they drove, and that's all we know about this guy. That's it. So he gets a little honorable mention there after serving for 22 years. So, you know, Tola served 23 years. Yair serves 22 years. But that's all we know about them. And now we're going to come to uh, this cycle that we've been talking about uh, through the book of Judges. If you look at the next verse, verse 6, it says, 
And then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. These are the false gods of the Canaanites around them. And the Ashtoreths, that's the female um, equivalent of Baal. The gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So again, here's our cycle of sin in the book of Judges. You you have at the top of the circle when they're following after the Lord, and that's what they would do when there was a judge in place who would kind of oversee them and lead them. As soon as the judge died, then they were left to to their own uh, discretion and and you know that's a dangerous thing when we're left to ourselves and we have no moral compass and no no God in our lives and so the book of Judges is replete with a statement about how every man did what was uh, right in his own eyes. We're living in a very similar day, unfortunately. And when you start to live like that, you're going to invite destruction or hardship in your own life. So on the cycle here, they fall into idolatry. So we start this vicious cycle. It says, or they started serving the Baals, the Ashtoreths. These are the various gods of the neighboring nations that were pagan. They were not serving the Lord their God. And so as a result, verse 7 says, so the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. So this is the next thing on that, on that cycle where Israel is oppressed by their enemies. You know, it's interesting, if you, if you look at the previous verse we just read, some of the gods that they worshipped were the gods of the Philistines. Some of the gods they worshipped were the gods of Ammon. And so God, in effect, is saying, you want to worship those gods? Fine. If you want to be like those people, okay, I'll bring those people into your lives. And so here come the oppressors who are going to come, at the Ammonites in particular, to attack and to besiege the Israelites. And it says in verse 8, from that year they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years, all the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. There's a little, you know, you've got to be careful. Sometimes it's Ammonites, sometimes it's Amorites, but they're all in that vicinity there. This is the eastern side of the Jordan River. So on a map today, you'd be looking in the country of Jordan. That's where the Ammonites and the Amorites lived in Gilead, verse 9, moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan. So they come from the eastern side of the Jordan. They're going to cross over into Israeli territory. They crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah also, against Benjamin, and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And so what happens when they get distressed? What do they do? They cry out to the Lord, right? That's what the next thing says. In verse, uh, next verse, verse 10 says, And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. So this is the other part of the cycle. It's at the bottom of the circle where now they cry out to the Lord. And God is so gracious every time. Verse 11, So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you? from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines, also the Sidonians and the Melekites and Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. All right, so this is a rebuke. God is saying, you turn to these other gods so, okay, then turn to them for your help. 
Why are you crying out to me? You don't really worship me. You only want me to rescue you. Please don't get into that cycle where you only seek the Lord when you want him to bail you out of something. That's that's a, a very natural part of our human nature, but it's not a good thing. When we only turn to God because we want him to bail us out of a crisis. Well, verse 15, and the children of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. And so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul, now this is, this is a, a statement about God. And his soul, the Lord's soul, could no longer endure the misery of Israel. King James, I'm reading New King James, but King James says it this way. The Lord's soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. You know, we serve a compassionate father. And even though the people here had sinned against God time and time and time again, isn't it encouraging to know that despite their continual disobedience against the Lord and the Lord rebuked them and the Lord will spank them by sending these foreign nations, but still the heart of God is to save his people. There is no end to the compassion and mercy of God. I mean, he is our loving, merciful Father. And so it says there that he, he could no longer endure the misery of Israel. His soul, nefesh in Hebrew, could no longer endure katsar in Hebrew. There's this grief in the heart of God for his own people. And so he, he's going to rescue them. He's going to rescue them. You know, it's interesting to note, in the book of Exodus, there's a similar thing that happens. When the Hebrew people, uh, really no fault of their own, I mean, they're down in Egypt to escape a famine, and Pharaoh turns them into slaves. And so, over the course of 400 years, the Hebrew people end up being slaves in Egypt. But it says in Exodus 2.23, that their cries went up to the Lord, and he heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with them. And then God sent a deliverer to rescue them. When you see people in distress, you often see in response to their distress when they cry out to the Lord that God comes to rescue them. That is good for us to remember when we're in distress. Because God loves to rescue his people. God loves to come to their aid. Now, it may not always be within the same time period that we want, but God is still faithful to come and to rescue us. And this is what he's going to do here for, for the people of Israel. It says in verse 17, and then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in, and encamped in Gilead. And the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So they've they've come to this place where they are sorry for their sin of worshiping other gods. They have uh, humbled themselves before God. Their cries went up to heaven. God hears their cries and his soul is so grieved over their condition, he's going to raise up a judge. But they're wondering. The people of Israel, they're wondering, well, who is this judge that God is going to raise up? Who among us will fight? Who among us will be our leader? And so they're just seeking the Lord with all of this. And then come chapter 11, we are introduced now to the next judge of Israel. Number eight on the list is Jephthah. 
and uh, he's all in capital letters because he's more of a prominent judge. Uh, He's a bit of a peculiar person in that it's difficult to understand where he's coming from in something that he does here. Um, His his life is even a bit um, vague because we don't even know for sure if he's Jewish, if he's Hebrew. Uh, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, said that uh, Jephthah was a Gentile. We have no reference to any tribe that he belonged to. Um, and, and we're going to see here in a moment that he is the result of uh, an adulterous affair that his dad has with a prostitute. And, um, and that his brothers reject him because he's considered like this illegitimate son. So his, his, his life is um, a, a little obscure. And what we do know about him, um, his, he doesn't get off to a great start, no fault of his own. It's just, you know, the way he's been treated and, and what he was born into. But take a look at his, at his story with me. His name in Hebrew, because again, there's no J in the Hebrew alphabet. His name in Hebrew is actually pronounced Yiftah. Yiftah translates, he will open and it's probably a reference to how God will open things and God uh, does things. So that's what his name means, Yiftah. And it says in verse 1, now Jephthah, the Gileadite, so we, we find out he's from Gilead. And we're going to find out in a minute that coincidentally his dad also has the same name. Uh, but that's not why he's called a Gileadite. That's the territory. But it says, now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. Of a prostitute. And Gilead, that's his dad's name, begot Jephthah, and then Gilead's wife bore sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. And then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. It's, it's a B in English, but it's a V in Hebrew. It's tov. Tov in Hebrew means good. So this is, this is the good land. It says, And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. Okay, so that's the introduction to this guy. Again, we don't know if he's Jewish or Gentile. Uh, what we do know is that his mom was a prostitute. His dad, uh, you know, picked somebody up on Tinder, hooked up for the night, and that was Jephthah. And, uh, and so Jephthah's born, but now can you imagine you're born into a family where your mom was a prostitute that dad had an affair with, so all the other sons born to the marriage of Gilead and his wife, they reject you because they think of you as you're the illegitimate son. You don't really belong to us. And so they, they bully him, they mistreat him, and so he flees, he leaves. And he, and he leaves to this area of Tov. Now, on a map, it would be just southeast of the Sea of Galilee on the Jordanian side of, of Israel. And so that's where he's living. He is separated from his family that lived in Gilead. Gilead is also on the eastern side of the Jordan River in what is today the modern country of Jordan. But he has fled a little bit to the north. He's living by himself. He's been mistreated. He's been shunned. So you gotta, you gotta, you know, have some empathy for this guy. This guy had no say in how he was born, into what family, and now he's being mistreated by the only family that he knows, and they've rejected him. So he, you know, you could spend some time analyzing this guy. He's, he's dealing with a lot of rejection. He's dealing with obvious dis- discouragement and abandonment and all this other kind of stuff. Now it says there that worthless men banded 
together with Jephthah. It doesn't mean that these guys were worthless in the sense of they had no value. It just means worthless in the sense that they were poor. They were penniless. They didn't have anything. And uh, these poor guys, financially, materially speaking, they band together with Jephthah, and then they just go, you know, they go raiding. They, they, uh, this is, you know, like the Wild West. Uh, this is the Wild West of Tov and Gilead, and they're just, they're just going around raiding with him. Well, verse 4 says, And it came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tov. And then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. And so Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? That's a fair question. That's a fair question. So here's what's happening. You know, the people of Gilead, the Israelites are seeing the forces of Ammon coming against them. They don't have a leader. There's no judge in Israel at this time. And so the elders of Gilead think, you know, who's, who's really kind of tough? Who's like a cowboy that we can really, you know, turn to who's going to fight for us and lead us? And everybody's like, oh, yeah, Jephthah, he's going around raiding communities. This guy's a beast. We need to go get him. And they're like, okay. So then they go to Tov and they find him and say, hey, we need you to come back and be our leader. And Jephthah's like, oh, yeah, sure. You kicked me out. We don't want me. And now you're in distress and you want me. How convenient is that? A side note here, and I just want to interject this. He is going to be a man that God raises up. And I love the way he's referred to in verse 1 as a mighty man of valor. Do you remember that Gilead, uh, not, sorry, not Gilead, Gideon was also referred to as a mighty man of valor. Even though at the time they not, didn't necessarily see themselves that way. What I love about the story of Jephthah, there's some problems in this story. But one of the things I love about this story is that his family of origin was not nearly as important as his relationship with God. Because God is going to use this guy who's been rejected by his family of origin. God is going to use this guy to be a mighty leader in the land of Israel. That's important for us to recognize because sometimes we need to be reminded that our heritage in the Lord is much more important than your heritage of origin. God can take our lives no matter what kind of family we came out of. Jephthah comes out of this family that rejected him. His mom was a prostitute. And yet God's going to take this guy and use him for his glory as a leader in the land of Israel. Don't ever think that because you came from this kind of family or that kind of family, that somehow that makes you unusable? No. In service to the Lord, He often chooses the despised things, the things that don't seem to be of wise standards to show Himself strong in the life of an individual. And so no matter what your family of origin or what your beginnings, God will use you for His glory. And he's, that's what He's going to do here with Jephthah. So Jephthah pushes back and he's like, you know, isn't this convenient? You want me now, you didn't want me then. But nevertheless, he's going to go. Verse 8, And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned again to you now. 
that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And so Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? You know, he wants a little confirmation here. You're going to take me back home and you're going to actually make me your leader. I love the way, by the way, he says, if you take me back home. Tov was never really his home. That's just where he fled to because he was rejected. He wanted to go back home. And so he asks, are you going to make me your leader if I go to all this effort? It says in verse 10, And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. And then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead. And the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, What do you have against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? Okay, they now have installed him as judge. The words he spoke before the Lord in Mizpah means that he made this commitment to God that he would be God's man for this hour. So God has divinely orchestrated this, using the elders of Gilead to move Jephthah into this place of leadership as a judge in Israel. The first thing that he does is diplomacy. That's the first thing that he does with the army of Ammon. He sends a messenger to say to the armies, to the leaders of Ammon, what do you have against me? Why do you want to come fight against me and against Israel here? So he tries the, the diplomacy first. It isn't going to work, but he tries it. Verse 13, and the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land. When they came up out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and to the Jordan, now therefore restore those lands peaceably. And so Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon. And he said to him, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Now, I'm going to pause here in what he's saying here, because I want you to understand what he's doing. He's actually about to quote an entire chapter from the book of Numbers. He knows his own, uh, the history of Israel. So whether he actually is Gentile, like Josephus said he was, or whether he's Jewish, he certainly knows Jewish history. And he's going, to re, he's going to recite here basically an entire chapter from Numbers and some sections from the book of Deuteronomy. And he's going to recite to the king of Ammon, here's what really happened. And so he, verse 17, and so he keeps reciting their history. He says, then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner, they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. And so Israel remained in Kadesh. And they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came to the east side of the land of Moab and encamped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. And then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land into our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. And so Sihon gathered all his people together and camped in Jahaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all his people into the land, into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. And thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites, notice, who inhabited that country. 
They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. And now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? Will not Will you not possess whatever Chemosh your God gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. And now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages, in Aror and its villages, and in all the cities along the banks of the Arnon for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? Pause. Let me explain what he's saying here. What he's basically saying is this. We didn't take your land. The Amorites took your land. Okay, now he's talking again. You've got to watch the spelling. The Ammonites are ready to attack the Israelites. But, the, but uh, Jephthah is saying, hey, listen, we didn't take your land. The Amorites took your land, Ammonites. But what happened was, in the wilderness wandering from Egypt to the Promised Land, when we were ready to pass through your territory, the Amorites occupied your territory at that time. We defeated them. They stole your land, not us. So when we defeated them, we just took their territory. You, you, if you have a beef, you have it with the Amorites. We took it from the Amorites. They took it from you. We didn't take it from you. That's what he's saying. But then he adds this little caveat, which is kind of like this little sarcasm here. And he goes, but after all now, because he's talking to the Ammonites, these are foreign people with foreign gods. He mentions the god Chemosh there in verse 24. He says, will you not possess whatever Chemosh your God gives you to possess? He's like, he's like, listen, if you, if you really want to occupy a land, why don't you let your God Chemosh fight for you? See how that'll work out for you. Because he says, for the last 300 years, Chemosh hasn't helped you. For the last 300 years since we've been in this land, and actually when, when you do the whole chronology of events, it's 319 years that they've been now in this promised land. But he rounds it off. He goes, you know, we've been here for 300 years. Why are you just now try, having, having to, you know, pick on us and want to fight with us? The Amorites are the people who took your land, not us. We took it from the Amorites. And if that isn't bad enough, then Chemosh should be fighting for you and give you back your land. So that's what he's saying. Well, that's going to be the end of diplomacy, right? When you're like making fun of your gods that haven't defended you for 300 years. And so he says in verse 27, he finishes up by saying, Therefore, I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, it says, because that's the end of the quote in verse 27, he's finished talking, but verse 28 says, However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. Okay, no diplomacy here, we're going to war. And so verse 29 says, then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Okay, so God's presence is going to come upon him. Remember in the Old Testament, which is where we are reading here, the Holy Spirit was not poured out upon all flesh like the Holy Spirit is poured out upon people today. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was only given on assignment to specific people for specific reasons. Uh, but, you know, when you get to Acts chapter 2 and you see when the New Testament church is born 
and the Holy Spirit falls on people, now the Holy Spirit is available to all who would believe and receive. But in the Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit only came upon certain individuals as assigned. Well, God's assigning the Holy Spirit to come upon Jephthah, to empower him, to go in God's power. And it says, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. So he's, he's on the offensive now with war. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. Now notice this. This is going to be the one thing that Jephthah is most remembered for. And it's sad because he's going to have a great victory here over the Ammonites. And it gets just a couple of verses. But what he's going to always be remembered for is this vow. So notice. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you, if, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands... Then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace, when he goes home, from the people of Ammon, whatever comes out my front door shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. What? He's saying when I get home, whatever comes out of the front door of my house, whatever that is, I'm going to sacrifice it to God. What's he thinking is going to come out of the front door of his house? You know, a billy goat or, or, or what? An in-law? And, you know, a, a lawyer? What's he, what's he thinking here? But this is what he says. Now, we'll talk about it in a minute, but there's a very tragic ending to this vow. So, keep reading. Let's see if we can get through the end of the chapter. And so, Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. Okay, he's got the vic- he has the victory. And he defeated them from Aror as far as Mineth, 20 cities, and to Abel-Kermim with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. That's the end of the war. That's the only comment about the victory. Now on to the result of the vow. Verse 34. When Jephthah came to his house of Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. And so she said to him, now notice her bravery, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. And then she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. And so he said, go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. Wow is right. Now, I want to say a few things, and we're going to have to pick this up next week, because I only have about five, six minutes to say this much. 
So there's this debate. Did he actually end up sacrificing his daughter? Scholars are equally divided. When you read different commentaries, some say, yes, he carried out his vow, he sacrificed her. Others say no. Those who say no point to the word and in his original vow in verse 31. If you look back in verse 31, the word and in Hebrew in this sentence can sometimes be translated or. So those who believe that he didn't really um, sacrifice his daughter, read verse 31 this way. Then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's or I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So the argument goes like this, that he's saying either I will dedicate whatever walks out of my house to the Lord or I will sacrifice it. If it is a family member, I will dedicate this family member to the Lord. If it is an animal, because sometimes, quite honestly, in that culture, your, your livestock would, you know, wander in and out of your home. It's possible that an animal could have come out the front door of his house. I will sacrifice that. So some believe that he didn't really end up sacrificing his daughter. He dedicated her to the Lord, much in the same way that Hannah dedicated Samuel to the Lord and took young Samuel to the tabernacle where he served the priest and lived out the rest of his life and became a prophet and a judge himself. And some say that's what Hannah did. She dedicated Samuel. She, she gave him up. She literally had made a vow to God. I will give my son to you. I will dedicate him. So when he was born and after he was weaned, she gave Samuel to the Lord. He was raised in the tabernacle of the Lord. And that's what some believe that Japheth did here with his daughter. And this is why he, he bewails this because she's his only child. And now he's going to take her to the temple or the tabernacle, dedicate her and, and never have her again in his home. She will be dedicated to the Lord, so she'll never get married. She will uh, never have children. He will never have grandchildren. And so that's what one side of the argument is, that he just dedicated her. He didn't really sacrifice her. But I will tell you that that interpretation, that Jephthah just dedicated her, he didn't sacrifice her, is almost exclusively a Western interpretation because it appeals to our rational sensibility. We think to ourselves, there's no way on God's green earth a dad could actually sacrifice his own daughter. And so we work the text in a way to appease our offended conscience. But the fact is, and you can check this out historically and, and read on this. The fact is, almost all Jewish literature and rabbinical views on this story say that he did, in fact, sacrifice his daughter, that it was a rash vow, that he regretted it, but nevertheless, he followed through with it. Which is why in the Jewish literature... Jewish historic literature, he is seen, even, even to this day in, in Jewish literature, he is seen as foolish, ignorant, and among the worst of the judges, and in the Jewish Midrash. Now, the Midrash is not Scripture. 
but it is a Jewish ancient commentary on the Old Testament scriptures. And in the Jewish Midrash, it says that God's punishment for Jephthah was to cause, quote, his flesh to decay and his limbs to fall off, end quote. Okay, so that's, that's Jewish literature, that's rabbinical um, thought. And it's very, you know, our, again, our Western mindset is, oh, that can never happen. But rabbinical and Jewish literature say, oh, yes, it probably did. And it is a reason why in verse 40 that it says that there was an annual remembrance of her where they would lament. That's the word that is used there. And that word lament in the Hebrew is only used twice in all of the Old Testament, and both times it is used in the book of Judges. So it is, it's a, a very unique word, and it is hard to understand whether lament means they just you know, mourn the fact that she was no longer with them and that she was living in the tabernacle or that she had actually died. Now, I think it is probable. I lean towards, because when, I, when, I, when you look at culture, you have to look at culture and context in which the scriptures were written. So I personally tend to lean of the opinion that I think he did sacrifice her. I think, again, that he regretted it. He, he thought this is horrible that he made such a rash vow, but that he ended up uh, doing that. And, and I just want to say this, and we'll pick up, because like, I've got three important points about what we can learn from Jephthah's vow that we need to understand about our words and promises and vows that we make. And I'm going to save that for next week, but I, w- I want to just end on this point because we've run out of time. I think the hero in this story is the daughter. Because whatever ended up happening to her, whether she ended up living out her life in the tabernacle, devoted to the Lord, dedicated to the Lord, or whether she was literally sacrificed here, she's incredibly courageous, and she is willing to help her father keep his word, that she would give up either her freedom or her very life because she wants her dad to honor God with his word. I think she's the hero in this story. And there's much to learn from Jephthah's rash vow that he makes here, but we'll save that for next week. So we'll pick it up there in our story. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And this is a hard passage, Lord. What actually ended up happening to Jephthah's daughter? We, we don't know. And perhaps you've left it uh, a bit unknown um, so that we can focus more on the problem of the vow that he made and, um, and not get stuck in the details of what happened as much as learning from this so that we won't repeat a similar bad vow. And uh, Lord, help us when we gather here next week to, to just really focus on the importance of our word and what that means to you and what that means to others. Vows and promises we make But Lord, we we thank you for at least the part of Jephthah's life that we can understand, which is that you took a young man born into a family that he was rejected by. His mother was a prostitute. He flees. He's, He's unloved and unwanted by his family of origin, but you loved him and you wanted him. And you raised him up and you used him to defeat a mighty army. And thank you, Lord, that you take broken, abandoned, mistreated people and you put them together and you use them for your glory. And you still do that today, Lord, that our family of origin is not nearly as important as belonging to you.
that you are a father to the fatherless. And we thank you, Lord, that you take very imperfect people with broken lives and you use them to accomplish your good purposes. So thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for the example of Jephthah in that regard. And we just, we praise you, Lord, that you can use any of us for your glory. And we thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen and amen.